pride is a problem. Pride is a problem. It's brought down many. And in Ezekiel chapters 26 to 28, the prophet predicts the destruction of the kingdom of Tyre, for these were a prideful people. You see, the city of Tyre was the home of the ancient mariners, a seafaring people. Tyre was the maritime capital of the Phoenicians. And yet the king of Tyre became proud. He became haughty. And God grew tired of Tyre. Proverbs 6 tells us that there are six things that God hates. And at the top of the list is a proud look. God hates pride. D.L. Moody once said, God sends no one away empty except those people who are full of themselves. James 4 verse 6 tells us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Ezekiel declares God's judgment on Tyre because of its pride and the pride of its king. Pride is an enemy. It infiltrates the human heart. Christian philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, Pride grows in the human heart like lard in a pig. Reminds me of LaSalle University basketball coach, a guy named Speedy Morris. He was shaving in front of the mirror when his telephone rang. His wife identified the caller as someone from Sports Illustrated. Well, Coach Morris was so excited. His program would finally get the recognition that he thought that it deserved. Morris actually nicked his face. He was so excited. He fell down the stairs as he raced to the phone to talk to this reporter. When he finally answered, the voice on the other end of the line said, for just 75 cents an issue, you can get a one-year trial subscription. (coughs) Boy, God has a way of letting the air out of an inflated pride, does he not? Tonight's chapters warn us of the ultimate outcome of pride. God tired of tire because he tires of pride. Chapter 27 of Ezekiel begins, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Now, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre. The following chapter is written in the style of a lamentation, that is, a funeral dirge. Ezekiel is going to sing the blues over Tyre. He's mourning over her coming destruction. And say to Tyre, you who are situated at the entrance of the sea, merchants of the peoples on many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. I am perfect in beauty. There's an old saying, a conceited person is someone who does a crossword puzzle with a ballpoint pen. A conceited person is the guy or gal who thinks they can do no wrong, that they're above making mistakes. And this was the king of Tyre. You know, we all need to sober ourselves with Paul's familiar words. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, I always, I've got to memorize, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's when we think we're all that, that's when we're most vulnerable to a fall. Someone once said, don't get the big head, your hat will cut off circulation to your brain. And that's what happens. You see, pride causes us to lose our objectivity. When we think we're perfect, that's when we're on the verge of proving we're not. 
the city of Tyre had boasted, I am perfect in beauty. They thought they were above doing anything wrong, but it wouldn't take long for this beautiful city for things to turn ugly for Tyre. Verse 4 tells us, your borders are in the midst of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. Tyre's borders were her influence, and she sailed the seas. The city wasn't hemmed in by mountains or by desert. The city of Tyre had access to the entire Mediterranean world because of her shipping fleet. And its builders had made this city beautiful. In a skillful literary move, Ezekiel is going to paint a picture of Tyre's excellence by describing the city as a ship. He begins in verse 5. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make your mast. O oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. The company of Azurites have inlaid your planks with ivory from the coast of Cyprus. The planks of these wooden ships are oak, but they're inlaid with the glistening white ivory. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread for your sail. Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha was what covered you. And this term Elisha was probably the name for the Peloponnesus, the peninsula in southern Greece, the land of Sparta and Mycenae. He says, inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. Your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots. Elders of Gebal and its wise men were in you to caulk your seams. That is, to repair any leaks that might spring in the ship. All the ships of the sea and all their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. Here he's describing Tyre as this wonderful ship, this beautiful ship that sailed the seven seas, that mastered the Mediterranean world, that did commerce on a global scale. But now, after describing this city as this beautiful seafaring vessel, Ezekiel talks about a shipwreck. Think of the city of Tyre as the Bible's Titanic. At the time of its launch, the Titanic was the largest ship afloat. It carried 2,224 passengers and crew. It was 375 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. When at 11.40 p.m., the ship hit an iceberg. By 2.20 a.m., the ship had sunk. It took less than three hours for this huge ocean liner to sink. The Titanic seemed so strong, so invincible, so unsinkable. And yet it sunk so quickly and so completely. And that is exactly what happened to the city of Tyre. Ezekiel continues, Those from Persia, Lydia, and Libya were in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They gave splendor to you. Persian is modern-day Iran. Lydia and Libya are in North Africa. All three nations were military mercenaries that helped to support and defend this grand city of Tyre. Verse 11, Men of Arvad with your army were on your walls all around, and the men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. Gamad means watchman. The men of Gamad could have been the Phoenician Coast Guard. They watched the shoreline. 
Tyre was not only grand and glorious, but it was well protected. It's also interesting, the Hebrew word gamad actually means cubit, which was a measurement of about 18 inches. And this has caused some Bible commentators to think that the Gamadians were actually pygmies, short people. Verse 12 mentions, Tarshish was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver, iron, tin, and lead for your goods. Now we're not sure where Tarshish was located. Some say Spain. Some say Britain. As a matter of fact, Britannia means land of tin. Here we're told that Tyre got its tin from this place called Tarshish. Usually in literature, it was the furthest point west in the Mediterranean. You remember when Jonah ran from God? He wanted to go as far away from Nineveh as possible. So what did he do? He bought a ticket to Tarshish. He goes on, Yavin, Tubal, and Meshach were your traitors. Yavin was the Greeks. Tubal and Meshach was Russia. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Notice they traded bronze and people. Apparently, these nations, even Tyre, was involved in slave trading. He goes on, those from the house of Togomar. This was a northern nation, probably Armenia. Traded for your wares with horses, steeds, and mules. The men of Dedan were your traders. Many isles were the market of your hand. They brought you ivory tusks and ebony as pavement. Dedan was a port on the Gulf of Aqaba, east of the Sinai. It flowed into the Red Sea, which then emptied into the Arabian Sea, which ultimately ran into the Indian Ocean. These traders brought goods from India and Africa to Tyre. And then he goes on, again, look at their influence, look at their spread around the world. He says, Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. They gave you for your wares emeralds, purple, embroidery, fine linen, corals, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. They traded for your merchandise wheat of mineth, millet, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. Because of your many luxury items, with the wine of Helbon and with white wool. Dan and Yavin paid for your wares, traversing back and forth. Wrought iron, cassia, and cane were among your merchandise. Dedan was your merchant in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants. They traded with you in lambs, rams, and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah were your merchants. They traded for your wares, the choicest spices, all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Cana, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria, and Chilmud were your merchants. These cities here mentioned were all in the Mesopotamian Valley. Ezekiel is going into great detail to show the breadth of Tyre's influence. Again, this was a global city. She did business with people in cities all over the world. These were your merchants in choice items, in purple clothes, in embroidered garments, in chests of multicolored apparel, in sturdy woven cords, which were in your marketplace. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled and very glorious in the midst of the seas. 
Your oarsmen brought you into many waters, but the east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. The east winds were noted for their violence. You remember in Acts chapter 27, the ship that carried Paul to Rome was driven hundreds of miles off course by what? We're told a tempestuous headwind arose called the Euroclidon, which means storm from the east. The east wind was what drove the ship out to sea. And here those notorious east winds are what destroy these great ships of Tyre. Again, all this is imagery. He's painting a picture. Actually, the east wind refers to the Babylonian army that's going to invade. It's General Nebuchadnezzar. This is the east wind that's going to come in and destroy the city of Tyre. Ezekiel uses this same imagery for Babylon in chapter 17, verse 10, and then again in chapter 19, verse 12. So he goes on. Your riches, wares, and merchandise, your mariners and pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the seas on the day of your ruin. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. Proverbs 16 verse 18 tells us, Pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. Once again, it was because of pride that Tyre ended up shipwrecked. Yes, it's true. She sold and bought all over the world. Her commerce was global, but it all went to her head. She became proud. Verse 29, All who handle the oar, the mariners, all the pilots of the sea, will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. They will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you. Gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. In their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre, destroyed in the midst of the seas? Here, all those that had done business with Tyre will come and they'll mourn her loss. They'll weep over her destruction. When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. But you are broken by the seas and the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. God will topple this commercial empire of Tyre. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid and their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the people will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. Author Carl Sandburg once wrote rather graphically, The earth is strewn with the exploded bladders of the puffed up. Again, God hates pride. The inflated will be deflated. Pride eventually gets punctured. God sees to it. Chapter 28 begins. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up. Now in chapter 28, the attention shifts from the city of Tyre 
to its king or its prince. At the time of Ezekiel, the king of Tyre was a man by the name of Ithbel II. Apparently, he had become haughty and prideful and arrogant. It's been said an inferiority complex would be a blessing if only the right person had one. This Ithbal needed to eat a slice of humble pride. All of this commerce, all of these riches had gone to his head. It reminds me of the fight of the century, the last century. It occurred in 1971, the brash talking challenger, Muhammad Ali. He squared off with the heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Frazier. Before the big bout, Ali proved he was the more skillful talker, that was for sure. He told Life magazine, there seems to be confusion. We're going to clear this confusion up on March the 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. I'm too smart. I'm too pretty. I am the greatest. I am the king. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I could get licked. Now, how's that for a boastful, a boastful brag? And yet, you know the end of the story. On March the 8th, 1971, Muhammad Ali got licked. He got whooped. Joe Frazier whooped him in a 15-round unanimous decision. Afterwards, all that Ali could say was, I'm not going to cry. And this is what happened to Ithbael II. In this chapter, he will utter some boasts that make Muhammad Ali's arrogance look like a man with an inferiority complex. Ithbael II was the height of haughtiness. And because of his pride, God will destroy him. There's really only one other person who has ever been as arrogant as this Ithbael. And that was the prince of pride. That is the originator and the propagator of all arrogance. I'm talking about Satan himself. It's not surprising that in the midst of this discussion of Ithbael, the devil will also come into focus. The Lord says of Ithbael, And you say, I am a god. I sit in the seat of gods. In the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Ithbel was like many Middle East despots. He was so enthralled with himself and his successes that Ithbel claimed to be a deity. He made himself out to be a God. You know, the pharaohs of Egypt did this. So did the Caesars of Rome. Hitler made claims to deity. In fact, this will be the sin of the end times antichrist. He too will make himself out to be a god. And this was the sin of Lucifer, formerly one of God's archangels. In fact, Isaiah chapter 14 verse 13 records Lucifer's boast, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. But in the very next verse, God says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, the Hebrew name for hell, 
to the lowest depths of the pit. The proud will be brought low. You see, this too was the sin of the devil. And this was the sin that he used on Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You remember what he told them? He said, eat the fruit. You won't surely die. Rather, you will be like God. The irony is that the man who is most like God is the one who's obeying him and abiding in Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to mold him and make him and shape him into the image of God's Son. You see, God wants us to be loving reflections of himself, but he doesn't want us to be prideful replacements. I loved it when my kids said that they wanted to grow up and be like their dad. Whenever one of my kids said that, I mean, it made my day. It was an incredible thing. I want to be like my daddy. What an incredible thing. But it's rebellion if they were to say that they didn't need me. And they want to be like their daddy in the sense that they want to replace him, that they want to assume his place. That's when to be like someone becomes ugly. Over the centuries, Satan has resurrected this lie over and over and over again that you will be like God. We're told by secularists today that the ultimate goal of evolution is the transcendence of man. Man will finally achieve his deity. A a familiar refrain in New Age and in self-help circles goes like this. Don't pray to God. No, you are your own God. Look for the God within. You've heard that, haven't you? This is blasphemy. That you can be your own God is a lie from Satan. And this was the sin for which Ithbel II, king of Tyre, is condemned and judged by God. I think most of us would agree that such blatant claims to deity are heretical. They're blasphemous. But you don't have to believe in the doctrine To be guilty of the practice. This is where we need to beware. Many of us would never claim to be our own God. Probably all of us. Yet we're often taking his place. Are we not? We live as if life were up to us. How often do we take matters into our own hands. And try to manipulate our circumstances. Rather than trust in God. How often do we play God so to speak. Seldom do we really trust God or rest in God's will or depend on God's power. You see, we're devout theists in theory, but some of us live a practical atheism. We're everyday ifbales. Hey, hey, we say that there's a God, but then we live like we're Him. In the movie Rudy, there's a scene where Rudy is anxious to get admitted into Notre Dame. And he asks the priest if he's done everything he can do. The old man has a great answer. He says, there are two incontrovertible facts in the universe. There is a God and I am not him. That's where wisdom starts. And this is what Ithbel forgot. He made himself his own God. In verse 3 Ezekiel speaks to him sarcastically. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. You know, Daniel was known for his wisdom. He was the teller of dreams and of visions. 
And yet the king of Tyre, Ithbel, claimed to be wiser than Daniel. It's interesting to me that Daniel's wisdom must not have just been known in Jewish circles or in the courts of Babylon, but it was known all around the world, even by the king of Tyre. Ezekiel is mocking the king of Tyre when he says, There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Rather than accrediting his wisdom and his wealth to God and his grace, he had taken credit for it himself. Verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations. These were the Babylonians. And they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. You remember the Babylonians were notorious for their ruthlessness and their barbarousness. They were the most terrible of the nations. You can recall how they slaughtered the sons of Jeconiah, the king of Judah. You remember they plucked out Jeconiah's eyes so that the last lingering image in the man's mind would be the murder of his own sons. These were the Babylonians. They were terrible indeed. And then verse 8 tells us, They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas, Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a God? But you shall be a man and not a God in the hand of him who slays you. You won't be boasting about how you're this great God when you're shipwrecked and when you're defeated. It's hard to claim Godhood when you're on the end of somebody's spear or when your enemy has a knife to your throat. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken says the Lord God. Here's a little historical footnote for you. The Phoenicians, like the Hebrews, practiced circumcision. And yet here God is going to judge them. and They're going to die like uncircumcised Gentiles. Now, beginning in verse 11, the range and the focus of this prophecy shifts dramatically. It's going to become more intense. You'll feel it. And we're going to peer behind the scenes of history. So far, the king of Tyre, this Ithbel II, has been the subject. But now, God is going to open Ezekiel's eyes to the spiritual power that lies behind the king of Tyre. And the scope of this prophecy is going to expand far beyond Ithbel. The words and the descriptions will obviously refer to another person. What we have here in Ezekiel chapter 28 is one of two Old Testament references to Satan before his fall from heaven. The other I referenced earlier, Isaiah chapter 14. You see, before Satan became the devil as we know him, he was a delight to God. He held special rank among the angels until pride entered his heart. The pride that was seen in Ithbel had originated long, long ago in the heart of Satan. After reading Ezekiel 28, you come away with the impression 
that no condemnation of pride is complete without a condemnation of Satan. This is why Ezekiel now is going to take us back to the Garden of Eden where pride began. In verse 11, the plot thickens. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And this is not some empty boast. This is the testimony of Almighty God. Lucifer, the archangel, was the seal of perfection. He was the greatest of God's created beings. Lucifer means light bearer or day star. In Isaiah 14, he's called son of the morning. He was the star that shined so brightly, he was still seen after the sun had risen. We're also told he was full of wisdom and he was perfect in beauty. And keep this in mind whenever you tangle with the devil. The guy's extremely smart. He's still clever. He's still attractive. So often we picture the devil as some slimy, slithery creature dressed in a red leotards and pointed little horns, a long tail, and a pitchfork. But that's not so. He was and is a beautiful creature. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, to this very day, Satan often appears as what? As an angel of light. He comes to us in appealing packages. A beautiful blonde in a string bikini. Perfect in beauty. Or a hip professor with a seemingly airtight, up-to-date argument full of wisdom. Don't be naive. Shakespeare said it best. The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Well, he continues to talk about the origins of this evil one in verse 13. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, obviously here, God is no longer speaking of the king of Tyre. Ithbel II never graced the garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, God drove man out of the garden and placed a flaming sword to block its entrance. That means that other than God, only three people ever walked in the Garden of Eden. Adam, Eve, and the tempter. It's interesting that Lucifer was in the Garden of Eden. It could be that one of Lucifer's Lucifer's jobs was to till the garden. Perhaps he had dominion over the earth for a time. But when God created man, that dominion was taken from Lucifer and given to the man. For that reason, certainly for others as well, Lucifer became jealous of the humans that God had created. He wanted to take back the dominion that he once had. And so he concocted a plot to steal that dominion. Remember, Lucifer was called the seal of perfection. When he saw man take over his seat of dominion, when he realized that one day he would be serving man, that he would be a minister to the heirs of salvation, when he realized that one day that man would even judge angels, even him, he couldn't stand the thought 
of being submitted to these creatures made from the dirt, not this one who's sealed in perfection, not this one who's full of beauty, not this one who's perfect in wisdom. Or so he thought, and so he rebelled against God. His goal became to steal man's dominion and end up destroying him. Ezekiel tells us more about him. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Now this collection of stones are three short of the gems that made up the high priest's breastplate, but the nine mentioned correspond. This might mean that in the distant past, Satan held an office, a high office in God's kingdom. Perhaps he carried out some of the priestly services. He was certainly involved in the worship of God, as we'll see in just a moment. We're told for, we're, for we're told, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. See, Satan was created a musical being. His workmanship or his area of service had to do with music. Timbrels or tambourines, other percussion instruments, pipes, which would be woodwinds and flutes. These were all part of his makeup. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He was created to be a musician. From the creation, the angel Lucifer had an ear for music. He was an accomplished musician. In fact, there are people who believe that Satan at one time was heaven's worship leader. It was his job to lead the heavenly host in the praise of God. And he was given tremendous skill. But one day something snapped. Pride had grown and grown and swollen to the point where it had to pop. He had lived in the shadow of the one that he had been praising. Like the morning star, he had tasted the sunlight. He had been center stage. He had shared in the limelight. I'm sure Lucifer had been complimented. He'd been patted on the back by his fellow angels countless times. No doubt on many occasions God had shown him his approval. But the day came when Lucifer wanted more. And rather than reflect God, he chose to replace God. We all struggle with pride, especially pastors. But I'm not so sure that musicians, like Lucifer, have perhaps the biggest problem with pride, with personal ambition. I've met musicians who are the most unselfish, the most giving, the most lovable people you would ever want to meet until it came to their music. Try to touch that music. Just tinker with their music. And suddenly they become unreasonable and selfish and even hostile. Reminds me of the guitar player who was plucking away when the man stuck his head into the room and said, Hey, do you know there's a sick old lady upstairs? The guitarist answered, I'm not sure. Hum a few bars for me. Do do, do you know there's a... Pastors of traditional churches say that when Satan wants to get into the church, he usually joins the choir. I guess we would say he usually joins a worship team. 
William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, said that he found choirs to be infested with three types of devils. The quarreling devil, clothing devil, and flirting devil. It's been said, just because a worship team can sing in harmony, it doesn't mean they can live in harmony. Music is powerful. Music is a mysterious thing. You know, a melody just pops in the head of a musician. It it just seems to come out of nowhere. He sings and he plays that song. And these innocent tunes profoundly affect the lives of thousands. People enjoy it. People relish it. Wielding this kind of power can be intoxicating. Music is also a spiritual thing. It cuts to the heart of a person. It moves our emotions. Thomas Carlyle once said, if you think deep enough, you think musically. And this is why Satan has been so successful in using music to penetrate and capture the hearts of men and to spread his message of rebellion. Think of the influence of music on our culture. Being an accomplished musician himself, Satan can inspire heretical and blasphemous lyrics and weave them into beautiful, impressive music. Suddenly the listeners are captured by the music before they ever consider its message. This is the lure of music. How often have you caught yourself humming a tune that you heard on the radio, maybe even singing the lyrics, when suddenly it dawns on you that what you're singing is blasphemy. It's contrary to what you really believe. It's conveying a message that contradicts you know, what you know is true. It opposes God's word. It just does it in such a catchy way. It tricks you. All of a sudden, you're caught. Music is powerful, either for good or for bad. And this is why it's easy for a skilled musician to let this all go to his head, to let all this power inflate his ego. Even a musician who wants to glorify God needs to be careful of pride. Musicians want to be in charge of their music and take credit for their music. The only problem is it's not their music. Their gift is God-given. Music is from God and for God and by God. I think all musicians need to surrender their gifts at the altar. Then they can pick them up with God's blessing. Sadly, due to pride, Lucifer's strategy changed from giving God glory to stealing worship for himself. You remember in the Gospels, Satan promised Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if he would bow down and worship him right then and there. He wanted his worship. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist blackmails the world into worshiping Satan. Again, Satan's goal is now to garner our worship for himself. And this is why Satan and his ugly hordes, they go nuts They come unglued when Matt starts to sing and when Allie praises the Lord and leads the rest of us in it. They clutch their pointed little ears and they go nuts when they hear God being worshipped. Our praise and our worship of God is like fingernails scraping down a blackboard to the devil and his demons. This is why when we just come in, And just mouth the songs. 
or listen to the music, and we don't embrace our job as worshiper, we're losing the battle. Satan is gaining the victory. On Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights, we need to drive him out of this place. We can when we worship God. If you want to torment the tormentor, then worship God. Then sing. Then magnify and praise His name. As we glorify God, our praise uncovers the devil's lies and reminds him of his inferiority and exposes him as an imposter. Like a high-pitched siren, the devil can't concentrate on his diabolical deeds when we praise God. He has to stop our praise or either drop his schemes. The devil grows confused and disoriented in the sound of our praise. All he wants to do is escape earshot. You remember when Saul was tormented by evil spirits? You remember what soothed him, what calmed him? David would come in and bring in his banjo or his harp and play praises to God. And it drove off the demons. It brought relief to Saul. The demons couldn't stand the praises of God. Praise and worship are powerful weapons in the spiritual battle. They deal serious blows to the devil and his cronies. I love what the early church father, Ignatius of Antioch, he lived around 100 A.D. I love what he said to the church of his day. He said, take heed often to come together to give thanks to God and show forth his praise. For when you come frequently together in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed and his fiery darts urging to sin fall back ineffectual. For your concord and harmonious faith prove his destruction and the torment of his assistance. <laughs> if you want to get involved in the spiritual battle and win victories for God, then become a worshiper. You'll drive back Satan's fiery darts with the power of your praise. Perhaps there is another reason musicians and worship leaders struggle with pride. Perhaps Satan singles them out because he knows he makes them favorite targets for his fiery darts. He knows that if they lead God's people, it's to their demise. If he can keep them squabbling with each other, if he can keep them discouraged, then he can prohibit them from singing praise. Shakespeare gave Cromwell the following counsel. Cromwell, I charge thee, fling away ambitions. By that sin fell the angels. How can man then, the image of his maker, hope to profit by it? We need to heed the same advice. We need a fleeing away ambition and give all the glory to God. There's a final point to be made here. Whenever we study about Satan, we need to remember that the devil is a created being. He was created by God. We're reminded of that here in Ezekiel. Satan is not God's equal. He is not God's peer. There's not God on one side and Satan on the other side. No, Satan was created by God. God is sovereign. Satan is subject to God. Recall the story of Job. Satan had to ask for God's permission before touching a single hair on Job's head. I guess you could say Satan's chain is long, but he's on a chain nonetheless. God is still in control. And then verse 14 tells us, You are the anointed cherub who covers... I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. 
cherubim were a special rank of angel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet had seen the cherubim standing beside the wheels that carried God's throne chariot. Apparently, the cherubim were a rank of angels that were associated with God's throne. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? It sat at the center of the tabernacle. And it was over the Ark that the glory of God rested. But the Ark had a lid called the mercy seat. And on that lid were two cherubim. According to Hebrews chapter 8, the ark and the mercy seat were a small scale model of God's actual throne in heaven. Apparently though, at a time in the past, there were actually three angels over God's throne, not just two. There were three angels that covered God's throne. For here we're told by Ezekiel that at the time in the distant past, Lucifer was one of those anointed cherubs who covered. And God says of Lucifer, you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Again, these hot stones might have been the coals and embers from the altar before God's throne. Maybe they were the shining stones from the priest's breastplate. Either possibility, though, would highlight Lucifer's priestly ministry. He had an exalted position on God's mountain. Verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. He was perfect, but he was created until iniquity was found in you. Ezekiel 14 again explains what happened in Lucifer's heart. It lists his five I will statements. We read them earlier. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Notice his willfulness, his pride. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This was the iniquity found in him. Pride. Then verse 16, By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. When pride was found in Lucifer's heart, he was booted from heaven. He was cast out as a profane thing, a vile and evil thing, out of God's holy mountain. And guess who was there? Guess who saw it? Guess who was right there alongside the Father and saw it happen? In Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus told his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was there. He saw Lucifer crash to the earth like an angry lightning bolt. Revelation 12 actually adds to this an interesting truth. It seems that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Could it be that To organize his revolt against God, Lucifer struck a few deals. He offered a few positions of power and prominence to his fellow angels. Like a smooth politician, he created some rebellious alliances. And as a result, a third, that's a sizable lot, a third of the heavenly host fell with him. He continues describing Lucifer's fall in verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom For the sake of your splendor. You know, humans try so hard to be smarter 
and to be prettier. Some of you are trying, right now, you're trying hard to be smarter and prettier. You're going to school or you went out today and bought some makeup or you're lifting weights. We all want to be smarter and prettier. For some of us, that's a major investment of time and money. But hey, I suggest tonight we be thankful that we're dumb and ugly. I think we should be. Just be thankful you're dumb and ugly. For apparently, Lucifer's intelligence and his attractiveness became a liability. Hey, trust me, being smart and pretty doesn't guarantee happiness. Just take my word for it. It's not what it's cracked up to be, man, I'm telling you. Sometimes it becomes a curse rather than a blessing. Satan hears proof. He says, I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And it was because Jesus saw Satan cast down to the ground that he was never fearful or intimidated or overly impressed with Satan's power. This is why Jesus goes on to share his confidence with his disciples. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. But then he says, and I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. God threw Satan to the ground to expose him and his weakness before the kings of the earth. As Ezekiel puts it here in verse 17, so that the kings might gaze at him. I like what Corey Ten Boone once observed. The fear of the devil is most likely from the devil himself. We need to remember 1 John 4 verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. On the cross, Jesus defeated the devil and stripped him of his authority. You remember, Peter calls the devil a roaring lion. And it was the roaring lion that was the toothless lion. The roaring lion was really quite harmless, but he had this ferocious growl. He knew how to look mean, and it scared his victims. And so the roaring lion would jump out and frighten little Bambi and would drive the prey in the opposite direction right into the claws and the jaws of the young lions who had been hiding in the brush. If Bambi had just resisted the roaring lion, nothing would have happened. And this is why James chapter 4, verse 7 tells us who believe, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him and he'll flee. Verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who, were, all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. All who knew Satan before, the angelic host, are now horrified by what's happened to him. Satan is no longer a beautiful but now a burnt self. Philippe Petit was a death-defying acrobat. He had some impressive feats on his resume. But at the Bayfront Auditorium in St. Petersburg, Florida, he fell 30 feet onto a concrete floor. It was a crushing fall. 
But it not only bruised Petit's body, far worse, it bruised his ego. And after the acrobat fell, he rolled over on the floor and he started pounding his fist on the concrete, shouting, I can't believe it! I can't believe it! I don't ever fall! But you did. And this was the case with Lucifer. Even after his fall from heaven, he has refused to humble himself and to surrender to God. He still maintains that he's beautiful and he's wise and that he never falls. His inflated pride, his rebellious heart are now his permanent condition. Well, such was God's judgment against the city of Tyre and its king, both Ithbel and the devil behind him. But Tyre was one of twin cities. Sidon was its sister. And the prophet Ezekiel has a word here against Sidon. Verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Sidon and prophesy against her and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and am hallowed in her. For I will send pestilence upon her and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be judged in her midst by the sword against her on every side. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And there shall be no longer be a pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel. From among all those who are around them, who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. Now remember, Ezekiel's judgments against the nations were all based on their treatment of God's people Israel. And this is why the city of Sidon is judged. She was a pricking briar. She was a painful thorn, literally a burr in Israel's saddle. And then thus says the Lord God, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land which I gave to my servant Jacob. And I believe this is a prophecy yet to occur. You know, today, there are still more Jews who live outside of Israel than within her own borders. Of the top ten cities with the largest Jewish population, believe it or not, only four are in Israel. Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, and Beersheba. Five of the largest Jewish populations are in the United States. New York, L.A., Miami, Chicago, and Philadelphia. The other one is Paris. But one day, God is going to gather the Jews from the ends of the earth. And He will set them apart from the Gentiles. And they will live joyfully and at peace in their own land. As we're told next, the chapter ends. And they will dwell safely there, build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely when I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. In the end, the God of Israel will prove that He is God.